I'm Andy. And I'm Lev. And you're listening to Snakes in the Garden. From the beginning of the ground book in the Book of Five Rings, Miyamoto Masashi writes, It is said the warriors is the twofold way of pen and sword, and he should have a taste for both ways. Even if a man has no natural ability, he can be a warrior by sticking assiduously to both divisions of the way. Generally speaking, the way of the warrior is resolute acceptance of death. Although not only warriors but priests, women, peasants, and lowlier folk have been known to die readily in the cause of duty or out of shame, this is a different thing. The warrior is different in that studying the way of strategy is based on overcoming men. By victory gained in crossing swords with individuals or in joining battle with large numbers, we can attain power and fame for ourselves or our Lord. This is the virtue of strategy. Now, I'm not proposing that everybody is going to agree with some of the implications in that statement, but I do think it's worth noting that the way of the warrior, as Miyamoto describes, is in the ability to do and then the ability to express or articulate it in writing, which we do as an act to share with others. Do we, does the audience know, or does the, can the audience know that you live on an island in Washington? I was thinking about starting with that. Yeah. Okay. So Andy lives on an island in Washington, one of the, the smaller islands that you can access by ferry. And I just came over to see Andy at his home residence for the first time. And I have not been on the ferry for Oh, maybe four years. And since then, I've acquired some seasickness that I'm not fond of. Here we are on an island. People waved to me as I was driving around. There was a golf cart crossing sign. Yeah, it's very old world. It's quaint. Yeah, Yeah. Um, as quaint, I would call it. I moved out here in 2003 from the New York metropolitan area. And I've never looked back. I just, I miss some of the Italian cuisine. I don't miss just about everything else. And (laughs) when witnessing the Cascade Volcanoes for the first time in Mount Rainier and uh, the landscape and the beauty of the Pacific Northwest, and uh, it still has the, the charm that you recognize coming off the ferry. People still wave to one another. Our population out here has probably tripled or quadrupled since that time. It's been a delightful place to live and raise children. And I'm very happy living here and very grateful to open my home to you and have you visit here. It's welcome, uh, welcome all. Welcome to Snakes in the Garden, episode four. A nice fire in the stove. It's quiet here. And we've been looking forward to doing this episode for one another and and for you, our listeners. So I I have a question, and I think this is probably perhaps seasonally relevant. We're coming up on a major Western holiday, which I will not name because you all know what I'm talking about. 
But you said you missed one thing you did miss about the New York metropolitan area was the Italian food. Do you cook Italian food? It's all I cook practically. All cook. Although tomorrow I will be making the conventional meal. You're doing the turkey, huh? I'm doing the turkey and, and the dressing and the potatoes and the pies and the vegetables. And we have family coming out. And this is a, a delightful place to host get-togethers also because when people visit, they're not just driving here. It's a It's an adventure. They have to stage. You sound like a travel brochure. Yeah, they have to stage their vehicle at the ferry lanes. They have to consider their their schedule to make sure they're on time for a ferry. Then the crossing is twenty minutes and very peaceful. And just a couple of days ago, we had a gray whale in Oro Bay. Wow. Um, which I don't know if it would have been visible from the ferry, but in order for the whale to have gotten there, the whale would have had to move past the ferry's pattern of movement. I did see a fin moving up out of the water. Yeah, there are all kinds of just, this is just such an incredible place. I mean, this is like going to Alaska, I you know, tantamount to that, that experience. You, you, you have know. really romantic feelings about Alaska. Yeah, I do. <laughs> I do. Um, do, you, do you worry at all about, um, you know, you mentioned like the volcano and so on. Do you worry about volcanic activity? Do you worry about tsunamis or does the bay sort of protect you from those major oceanic events? Yeah, I don't worry about tsunamis. And there was an earthquake here in 2000. The epicenter of it was Anderson Island, where we are right now. And people who lived through that, you know, recall that without a great deal of fanfare, you know, some stuff cracked, some stuff fell. It wasn't some kind of um, feature film level <laughs> earthquake. But that's the last time there was an earthquake around here that anybody can recall yeah and i there have been no natural weather events here that have been particularly catastrophic with the exception of one that we lived throughout here where it became so cold and as a result and windy and stormy and power was problematic yeah. within our island's infrastructure and the department of emergency management had to come out here with large generator trucks and power mm -hmm. the island for a few months. Oh, a few months. Wow. And that's, a, that's a big event. While they rebuilt, uh, that's, that, that was, that was the most yeah, serious thing, but you can't, everybody who lives out here largely has a generator. They have the ability to sustain themselves comfortably for many, many Long days. Enough. Yeah. Enough, enough people with boats that we could all evacuate if we needed to. Mm. I think about, um, you know, cause you're from the East coast, you migrated out here. I'm from the Midwest and migrated out here. And there were a lot of things I didn't know about this environment when I moved out here. So I'm from Michigan. We get tornadoes. We get a ton of snow in the winter. We get tornadoes in the summer. It's pretty much the worst thing that you can imagine. And I know how to prepare for a tornado, right? Out here, what I didn't realize was that there you know, was that risk. Of course, I knew distantly, yes, there can be earthquakes. Yes, there can be water events. I didn't think so much about the wildfires. And I remember the first year that I was here where there was a major wildfire event. And there's something so apocalyptic about that type of natural disaster. Oh. You know, the all-consuming, the flame, there's something really primal about it and something really, really terrifying. You know, this isn't just, this is a blaze that can shoot up through the mountains and be uncontrolled for weeks to months at a time. And it's really, really devastating. And I think... Uh, this is kind of in line with some of the work that we're doing coming up. Um, but I'm thinking about like, what's in your go bag? What do you have to prepare for these disasters? You know, 
But in the event of those major logistic failures, how does the everyday person keep themselves safe? And it isn't just natural disasters. I mean, when we think about uh, this pandemic, COVID, we both as citizens and it seems like as a government, we're not logistically prepared for this eventuality. Like, for example, I don't have children, but a lot of people do. And school is not only a resource of education, but it's it's essentially our nationwide babysitter, right? We know that our kids are going to be safe at school while we are working our nine to five job. And so we have this pandemic hit where schools need to close and suddenly everything's work from home. Your kids are going to be on your laptop on Zoom. Not only is this a technological inconvenience, not every family has access to internet and technology, but when kids do return to school, what logistics are put in place to keep them safe? We didn't prepare ways to make sure that the populace could survive when they're out of work because they don't want to spread a contagious illness. The government said, hey, you need to stay home. And we all, for the most part, did our best to do that because we didn't know what was going on. And I'll shut up in a second. This is like borderline conspiracy level shit. Ah, So take it with a good... No, what I'm about to say. What I'm about to say. Okay. So someone introduced me to this, this thing called Event 201. And Event 201 is one of many simulations of a probable event that has potentially devastating consequences to Western business and infrastructure. And this particular event, Event 201, was an imagining based on a group of scientists of a probable pandemic, and they imagined that it would be something related to a COVID. So COVIDs, coronaviruses in general, are not new to us. They've existed in livestock for ages, right? And we have suspected, scientists have suspected, that in at some point, these could be transmissible to humans. But what's interesting about this event 201 is that it, quote unquote, predicted this specific coronavirus pandemic and its potential impacts. And this exercise, this thought exercise, this event was something that world leaders were invited to participate in, in order to help them imagine how this might impact the society that they were tasked with maintaining and caring for. And it's spooky. Just the coincidences of this particular probable event were very related to what actually did happen when coronavirus hit us. And it it is so strange to think that there are people in power who had some sense that this would happen. We even saw how this virus was, you know, throttling the infrastructure and society in other countries before we knew that it came to the United States and nothing happened. We were like, ah, maybe we shouldn't let Chinese people come here. <laughs> that was kind of it. And we, we got hit by the storm. Here's what comes to mind when I, I hear all of this. Human beings routinely have experiences of, I'll use the word to describe being startled. I think we were all startled with pandemic and COVID. I think, generally speaking, education and leadership around startling experiences is underdeveloped. Mm -hmm. I think many people can conclude that preparation for a startling event 
before one experiences the event is not the optimal way to spend time. So people don't prepare. People don't prepare for the physical ambush. They don't prepare for the emotional ambush. They don't prepare for the societal ambush. I use the word ambush to describe the phenomena of an unanticipated attack mm-hmm. on your well-being, your your consciousness, your life. COVID was an unanticipated, for most human beings, attack on the nervous system, an attack on their awareness, an attack on their worldview. And I think it's had a number of second and third order consequences that institutions and education are trying to catch up to now. So when I think about something that you've described as event 201, I can tell you that we have cohorts of people like our veteran community where preparation is not new. Yeah, they're not a stranger to it. And expecting that things can change very rapidly is not a phenomenon they're unfamiliar with. And I'm not surprised that over this past year, the online education and distance learning market is exploding to a multi-multi-billion dollar industry and is being heavily populated with preparation-oriented learning. Yeah. People wanting to learn how to, to camp, navigate, go through a whole day without electronic devices. I think people are frantically recognizing what you just described. We didn't see this coming. I don't like how this feels. I want to do something so if it does happen again, I don't feel this way. Yeah, we don't like to be caught off guard. Right. Humans in general, we don't like to be caught off guard. And I think there's a huge community of people who have been interested in, I don't know how I would describe it, traditional skills of living off the land or sustainability. You have, you've gone down that road. Sure. I've, I've been in that rabbit hole, you know, a little bit for sure. And certainly the idea of, if not a mass human extinction, but of some apocalyptic adjacent event has been in the cultural phenomenon for some time. You know, why else are we drawn to movies like Mad Max or Waterworld or, you know, any of these films that describe, uh, you know, zombie movies? What else is a zombie movie other than a fear that something will overtake humanity and force us to survive in untenable situations? Um, These are these are big snakes in the garden and. Listen to you. There it um, yeah. is. The well, name of the I show. mean, that's what we're talking about here. And, and I think that when we consider our ethos, our work, I think our interest is in our own personal journeys and in being of service to others to steward the snakes in their garden in such a way that they're going to be around. We're going to have to live with them and we need not run around with a machete trying to kill them because they don't seem to go away. And at the same time, uh, I think we can coexist in a manner that, like Takawan demonstrated to Miyamoto Musashi, we can be in the same space in a completely self-regulated manner. What this big, what COVID did do, I think, was raise our awareness so much about the distinction between um, sovereignty and, and community. For our work, the events where those can clash seem to be, for instance, I was recently retained by the Seattle Chamber of Commerce Mm -hmm. to provide a webinar to businesses who 
whether one agrees with it or not, they're forced with this responsibility minimally to send out messaging about masks and vaccine verification when people come into their store. Right. Secondly, and, and we live in Washington and Washington is one of the states that currently has enacted uh, a mask mandate. Yeah, for... leading the nation in mask mandates and vaccine verification, particularly in Pierce County. They're, they're really at the edge of making people who never thought when they were going to be a barista or a server or a customer service person in a showroom start going down this road of engaging people from the public in their workplaces about these these issues and yeah it's interesting i i i kind of, i think i know where you're leading this but it's it is making me think of one thing i noticed that was interesting to me because first of all in addition to the for the mask mandates to enter just about any public structure and vaccine mandates uh, for many, if not all, events, um, there's also vaccine mandates that employers are now permitted to enact for specific types of employment within the state. And I think an interesting corollary to that, randomly I was on Indeed looking at jobs. And something I noticed was that there are now more jobs with taglines that say no vaccine requirements. Yep. Uh, and I think one I was looking at in particular was electrician. So they're hiring for electricians and they wanted people to know it was in the title line. You don't have to have a vaccine to come and do this job, which is, of course, a direct result of the fact that many big name employers, many jobs that are not just your quote unquote entry level positions, you're now required to get a vaccine. And for people who disagree with that, they're now seeking alternative employment. And it's, it's just funny to see how the, the sphere has changed. Yeah. And, and there, are, there are bad events that are happening over this issue, which is why I got the phone call. But there are, there are assaults that are occurring in places of business when someone has to carry a message of mask mandate or vaccine verification to a customer and a customer uh, feels opposed to that. And right. I, for me personally, what I had to explain to the chamber and to the people listening in the webinar, and I really don't, I mean, I have thoughts and feelings about the issue, but in terms of this stuff, I don't care one way or the other. I'm interested in someone not getting stabbed, not getting beaten up, and two human beings at least having an interaction like the snake in Takawan where, hey man, let's just be and put some limits around the personal investment we have in this. Right. Because when you're a business owner and your your enterprise is selling hardware or selling technology, staff members are not getting communication training in how to manage aversive interactions over COVID safety measures. So someone just kind of does what they know and says, hey, you need to put your mask on. And the next thing you know, there's a fight. Right. Like and a physical the, fight. For the most part in these, you know, the service industry, you're going to get into some, there's going to be customer disagreements. Of course, there's always going to be the potential for escalation. But for the most part, it is not surrounding confronting someone and their core beliefs and values. Precisely. It's, like, it's, it's you, got nothing to do with the core business. Like, hey, man, you got to wear a shirt in the 7-Eleven. Right. Right. You know, that's not. Sure, that person might be upset that they have to put a shirt on and I don't get paid enough to get yelled at and neither does anyone else. 
And this person probably doesn't have a deep-seated belief or value about what it means to wear a shirt in right. 7-Eleven. Right. Like, probably that guy gets it. This has been part of our social coda for so long that he knew he was supposed to wear a shirt in here. He knows I'm not telling him something crazy. I'm not challenging him. Right. Really. That's been around for a while. It's been around. Being dressed has been Being dressed. in public has been around for a while. I, I don't agree. know where that one came from. Honestly, yeah. like I think I shouldn't have to wear a shirt in the 7-Eleven and I will die on this hill. <laughs> Yeah. I'm just going in for a Slurpee. So, <laughs> so um, you kind of started this part of our talk with preparing and what's in your everyday uh, level of preparedness. I think what, what you and I are trying to do and what we're trying to accomplish in Snakes in the Garden and, and certainly what I'm trying to do in other areas of work is equip human beings with exactly what to do during those moments so that they are prepared, so that they're not startled so that they have a blueprint, so to speak, uh, where they didn't have one. And they have a way to navigate those tough situations, hopefully as safely as possible. And that requires, that requires not only from direct experience how to navigate those events, but how to articulate about those events in such a way where someone can derive some learning without having to have gone through the crucible of that. Because to be startled and to be threatened and to feel humiliation or feel shame or feel regret all fall into, when it happens a lot, a trauma category. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of trauma getting doled out right now. And, you know, for me, my, my function in all of that appears to me to be pretty clear. I'm interested in the interaction occurring in a peaceful manner. And Right. How do you how do you do how do you set limits with someone without it activating their deepest animal brain and then losing their shit? Right. Would right. we both just want to go home at the end of the day? Right. Exactly. And frankly, how do you get how do you set a limit? How do you get someone to do something they don't want to do? And how do you say no? Those three conditions precede assaults more than any other, and we know that from the social learning research. So mask mandates and vaccine verifications from the person carrying that message fall into those categories. When you're talking about the social learning research, what's the research that you're referencing? So particularly I'm talking about Zolnikov and the well, research that he brought back. It's Zolnikov and his pedigree. In other words, from the work of Dr. Gordon Paul in the 1970s of observing and measuring interpersonal interactions on what became known as the staff resident interaction chronograph. Dr. Gordon this Paul. This is from an inpatient facility that this was research was derived from. Care settings. Care a, settings. A, a number of care settings. And, okay. and Dr. Paul arguably stood the discipline of psychology on its ear with really moving from philosophical experiential contexts to contexts of science, things that can be observed, measured, and counted, and right. conclusions drawn. So Gordon Paul started a whole pedigree of psychologists like Anthony Mendito, Bill Anthony, Will Newbill, Brian Zolnikoff, and many, many others mm -hmm. who got deep in the weeds on not just observing experience and processing that emotionally, but observing things counting things 
and measuring things and looking at trends. Right. And as anyone who is remotely in the discipline of statistics, research, sociology, and so forth probably knows, like, it is extremely difficult to observe human behavior in a setting where your observation doesn't alter what they might do and to do so ethically, to do so safely, right? Um, to do it at all. It's expensive to, to do. To do it at all. So there's one, there's kind of a, a gift in this research being able to happen in a care setting. Yeah. Um, first of all, and there's also, of course, a slight caveat where people react differently within controlled situations, like a care setting, like a prison, like an inpatient facility. They act differently than they would do just generally out on the street. But yeah. I think there's some merit in observing maybe what humans do either when they feel trapped, when they believe that they are trapped, or when they're conscious that there's a power dynamic at play. Like if I'm a patient in a care setting, I have the understanding, if perhaps not the agreement, but I have the understanding that the nurse or the doctor or the warden or whoever is in charge has power over me. They do get to say, hey, you can't do so and so and so. And I might disagree, but I recognize that in that situation, my power is limited. Same as if I'm walking in into an airport and I'm late for my flight, you know, like I want to say, hey, I paid $500 for this ticket. You got to let me on that plane. They're not going to let me on that fucking plane and they yeah. don't have to. Right. Right. There's unassailable merit in deriving ideas minimally from that research. And when you were talking about power, I was thinking about a fundamental cause of aggression that's also a very consistent research outcome. Is it the impotence trigger, that one? Well, yeah, it, it definitely uncontrollable circumstances, but the definition of, of a fundamental cause of aggression is that people resort to that behavior when they have concluded that they are at the mercy of an uncaring system. Hmm. Those words in that order. Being at the mercy of an uncaring system has been identified more than once as a fundamental cause of aggression in published research. That's huge. It is. It, it describes all of the attributes that you just kind of talked about when it comes to power wielded in an unethical or immoral manner. Mm -hmm. And suffice it to say, you're right. Well, I don't want to be right. I mean, I do want to be right. I'm not here to be right. <laughs> yeah. Um, but there's smaller ways too. I wouldn't even call them smaller. Imagine being someone. Listen, you really told the story perfectly. We've all been startled by COVID. Did anybody ever think that an executive order, not legislators coming together and passing law, did anybody ever anticipate that an executive order from a lawmaker would wind up coming into contact with your life to the extent that your employment is going to hinge on accepting a vaccine or not, that your ability to patronize a store is going to be contingent on you wearing a mask or producing vaccine verification or not. I bet Japan imagined it. Maybe. <laughs> the, the point I'm trying to make yeah. with that is imagine people who were startled by that, opposed to the experience of it, and naturally conclude I feel as though I'm at the mercy of an uncaring system. No one seems to give a shit about the fact that I don't like this or agree with it. And I'm not surprised that wherever one falls on the issue, I would not be surprised if we learned in direct observational coding research 
that whether one was supportive of COVID safety or opposed to COVID safety, if there wasn't an experience of feeling like they had no control over an uncaring situation or system. Yeah. In a lot of cases, it's just the tiniest things too, you know, and the, the regulation and the way that we've been, the Royal, we have been tasked to manage this has been inconsistent at best, especially in the beginning, nobody had any idea what was going on, what was safe, what was appropriate. And so you get these micro interactions. Uh, like I work at a place where sometimes I make coffee for folks and someone's individual COVID restrictions might cause them to say to a customer, I can't fill your personal cup with this drink. You must buy a cup from us. Now to me, this is the most absurd thing that I've ever heard in my entire life, right? Right? Like, okay, I get it. I don't want to be touching someone else's germs. Reasonable. But where am I taking this cup? I'm taking this cup over to a sink where I have soap, I have bleach, I have so on. I'm supposed to, you know, I'm with this customer, probably going to be handling their money. So I should be washing my hands before I make their drink anyway. Right. So now you get this person over here that's saying, I can't take this thing because it's too dirty and it's going to contaminate the whole experience. And that's absurd. I'm not going to argue with this person who's probably making $13 an hour about it. I'm going to give them 50 cents for the cup or whatever it is that they want. Right. But it's that little jab. Yeah. Like, really, I can. there's a solution to this problem and I can see it, but you don't agree with me and you're calling upon your values to say that I'm objectively wrong. Or we get yeah. businesses who have moved to not accepting cash. And this horrifies me. Are you serious? There's tons of businesses out there. I don't know if it's as prevalent anymore, but I've been in a lot of businesses that are saying no cash. Or at least they were in the beginning of COVID. That wow, they did not man. Accept I did not know that was going on. Physical currency because of COVID reasons. Like, I have a credit card. I have a debit card. Like, I don't care, really. But we have built our societal foundation on the fact that this paper bill that I have received has meaning and significance in the world. And now you're telling me that I need to buy into some other system because I want to walk in here and buy a bag of Fritos and a pack of Marb Lights. I can't do that. Like I can't come in here and I can't get my shrimp and grits with this that I worked four hours to make. What you're shrimp and grits have you? Have what's you <laughs> Uh, it's a, it's a, Sorry, it's a traditional deep South dish appropriate for breakfast or for dinner. Absolutely majestically beautiful in every way. I'm salivating thinking about it. Actually, I'm a little like lightheaded with the notion. You've had, you've had grits. It's been a long time. Since oh I've had grits. my I don't mean God. to derail. I don't mean to derail. No, it's in okay. fact, this is probably an appropriate time for us to take a break. Yeah. I think that what we're striving to achieve in Snakes in the Garden and what so many others are trying to achieve in pushing the big rock up a long hill, as my dad used to say. In, uh, is that a Sisyphus reference? I don't know. Uh, that's, the, that's the Sisyphean struggle. Pushing a big rock up a long hill? Yeah, he got, he got punished for some, Sisyphus got punished for some indiscretion, if I remember correctly, and his punishment was to push a big rock up a hill over and over again for all eternity. Wow. You know, I'm going to research that now because if my dad used to say that all the time and I don't know where he got it and I, he was very well read, I would imagine that that's where it came from. His context though was in becoming, that was how he described his journey in becoming a world-class jazz improviser. 
that that journey was like pushing a big rock up a long hill. Okay, so your your dad, you as well, your dad was an aficionado of mythology. We've got this brief Wikipedia expert in Greek mythology. Sisyphus was the founder and king of Ephira. He was punished for cheating death twice by being forced to roll an immense boulder up a hill only for it to roll down every time it neared the top, repeating this action for all eternity. And it's proposed that the rock itself represents mankind's absurd dilemma, which is ultimately impossible to resolve. That is, that mankind longs for reason and meaning in the world, but the world refuses to answer that longing. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, Dad never talked about the hill, the, the rock rolling back down the hill. And, <laughs> and I, I have a vision of that example that I have been using for you know almost all of my adult life in describing hard but noble things i i have to say that for me i never never once until this moment envisioned the rock rolling back over me and others that we would push up then if we needed to rest we could pause and rest that still requires effort because you don't want the the rock to roll back on you roll back on you but i i have to say and I mean this in all honesty, I have never conceived in my imaginings of this idea ever, the rock coming back down over me. Now, in life, the rock has certainly come back down over me, but I never saw it that way. Sure. I mean, if this is if this is metaphorical, right? If, if the rock is mankind's eternal struggle for, for reason and for meaning, then that rock rolling back over you, in my mind, would be kind of that crushing existential dread of like, everything is meaningless. This, this sucks. Um, I'm powerless. But of course, if you're, you know, tasked to do this by some godlike force, you still have to push that rock right back up that hill. Over well, right. It, it, precisely. But we're forced, you know, as humans to constantly be looking for meaning and we're constantly forced to confront the idea that it will never be handed to us, that it will never be given. All there is is pushing that rock. I don't feel like I know any other way but perseverance. And I, I I just say that truthfully, and it doesn't mean that I haven't had periods of despair or depression or feeling like everything is destroyed and broken. But somewhere, whenever I've been in that space, the ember of perseverance glowed. And from there, I was able to reconstitute or reassemble something to try again, try something differently, whatever. I'm not saying that that makes me special at all. I'm, <laughs> I'm just saying I think that's in human beings. Yeah. And I think everybody has their own capacity for that, their own challenges with understanding that capacity within them, but essentially charged because of very existence and life to pursue that, to find a way to persevere no matter what to know that that's there. And if it's sought, I think that that never goes unrewarded. I mean, you could argue uh, in this instance, in this mythology, this guy is doing this for all eternity, right? Right now, Sisyphus is out there pushing that rock right, right now somewhere, right? Right. So why? Well, yeah. yes, why? And anything that you're forced to do forever instantly becomes a punishment. It could be the most glorious thing you might ever have, but if it's all you're doing 
until the end of time and time will never end, that's a punishment. So you might imagine that if Sisyphus were able to die, that would be some relief for him. I to have a different this. perspective on that. I do. I, yeah. Okay. Okay. You know, I, I, and I, and I'm not, I, I guess what I mean to say by sharing that is I, I, uh, I would love to appreciate why, yes, it was issued to him as a punishment, mm -hmm. but he cheated death twice. Mm -hmm. Now he's going to learn his lesson. Now he's going to wish he was dead. But the lesson will never take away that he cheated death twice. And what probably allowed him to cheat death was the same emotional stuff that the person who doled out the punishment wanted to extinguish in him, but he's still pushing the rock up the hill for all of eternity. So you see this as kind of a glorious I see this experience. as him saying, right, you, you taking my obedience is up to me, not to you. You breaking my will is up to me, not to you. So in that way, I, I see the ongoing pushing the rock up the hill as the, well, fine. I will, as a result of this effort, be able to demonstrate to you, fuck you for all of eternity, because I'm going to keep pushing this rock up the hill and I'm not going to pursue relief from death because I already cheated death twice. That's how I see that. It doesn't seem like he's got really any other options, though, right? Like, I don't know. In this idea, if he stops pushing the rock, it's going to fall on him and it's going to hurt. And probably someone's going to come over there and be like, hey, Sisyphus, get back to work. Like, he effectively... Well, now we're playing with the whole... Well, no, right there. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I went to college. What do you want from me? Yeah. Um, but there's, there's two things happening there for me. I can uh, understand and accept and appreciate the idea that this is a glorious, like, fuck you kind of come up at, comeuppance in that if you are left with no other choices to perform the duty that you must perform that is no longer your choice with a sense of appreciation and valor is the final choice you have left. You can do that with misery or you can do that with joy and pride. And if Sisyphus is out there doing it with joy and pride, I think that's empowering because that's how I see having it. a perspective on that situation yeah. is the last choice he has left. But in the metaphor of mankind's struggle for reason and meaning, there is something that death as a punctuation adds to that. If you know that you will be struggling to find meaning for all eternity and the universe isn't going to give it to you, the idea that your struggle will someday end forces you to live in that present moment. Like that is what you are given in order to have that perspective on life, in, in my opinion. And I, I mean, this is a sidetrack really, but like I read a lot of science fiction and there's a ton of science fiction that imagines a world in which people are able to live forever. And I have yet to ever read a science fiction story where those people who have begun to live forever aren't miserable. Mm. And I, I think, I think to me, there's something telling about that. To me, there's something telling about the overwhelming, repeated struggle and turmoil and search for meaning. And you forge relationships with other people who end up dying. Like you've seen all of the suffering since the dawn of time. And what can become most meaningful to you is to know that it will have an end. And from a behavioral health and recovery standpoint, I've met people, some of the most inspiring people in my entire life who have had the experience of chronic suicidality. No matter what is happening in their life, they want to die. They want it to be over. 
And what I hear over and over again from those people is that what actually helped them wasn't trying to eliminate the thought of dying from their personal mythos, but just understanding and accepting that it's relieving that there could be an end, that there is some comfort in knowing that that is always an option, not to take the option, to still seek other options, but just knowing that it's there, especially if you're in your darkest of darks or lowest of lows, there is some comfort to that for people, I think. We're getting really existential though. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So with that, um, yeah, so uh, interesting episode today. You know, we were talking about like COVID and shit. Yeah. So uh, here's, let, let's wrap up with that. That's a good idea. So folks, um, we're living in a world now where in parts of the country, you as a human being in your community, in your county, in your state may bump up against uh, a situation where someone maintaining an opposite view than you on the issue of masks or vaccine verification may show up. And all I can say, uh, unless you'd like to pursue some training with Lev and me and Snakes in the Garden, where we have some classes coming out known as EDC, Everyday Crisis, or you'd like to learn more at Jumpstart Mastery, which is a company that I'll be flipping the switch on in January that will provide a number of virtual Uh, learning opportunities. Be the change you want to see. If you feel strongly about your position, temper that with the need that we have to live with one another. That that life and peace uh, right now is being assailed by people being polarized on this issue. There's no need for it to be assailed. But we can get so enveloped in our own passion and frankly, limbic brain when presented with some of the startling incidents that can occur over these issues, to pause and take a moment before issuing a response, to pause and get self-regulated before engaging another human being about this issue. And if you're unable to navigate it verbally, peacefully, to get out of there and to avoid an argument or a fight. People are unnecessarily getting hurt over aversive interactions to these issues, and it needs to stop. I feel very privileged to be in the the response to humanity with how to navigate those interactions better. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess I would say don't don't live like you plan on living forever, because you won't, and neither will the people around you. And uh, we tend often to act like the preservation of life itself is the most beautiful thing possible. But ultimately, I think what matters the most is making the life that you have the best that you can. And I don't know, and we've covered this before, but I don't know anything that makes life more meaningful than the the authentic connections and the relationships that we are able to create with one another. Here, 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 here. Thank you all. Thanks for listening. Thanks for visiting. We look forward to uh, seeing you on the next one. Take good care. This is Lev, and you've been listening to Snakes in the Garden podcast. If you have questions or feedback for myself or for Andy, you can email us at snakesinthegardenpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.